and pleased to say that we got our first minion underway this uh, morning, which was very exciting to be back in some form. It was uh, it's not uh, not the same, but it will we are we get in there. So it's a good start. All right. So tonight we are going to be dealing with the uh, the basic customs that we have um, around Shavuot. All of them we know. Not all of them we know exactly why they are customs or what the meaning behind them is. And uh, some of them you'll see are a little bit uh, contrary. Um, you, in fact, uh, dare I say is that uh, of all three customs, we don't do any of them the way that they were actually instituted. So let's start off. So these are all from order. So you and I learned these a bit. I'm giving some more information that you didn't see. So you'll see over here. All right. So this is brought down the Mishabura. It's a that the the old pious ones of yesteryear used to stay up all night long, voice Torah and learn Torah. And that is how the custom has spread for people to stay up all night. So why do we stay up all night? So Katava Magan Avraham, so the Magan Avraham, we are talking seventeen hundreds, he wrote, Shuta. She Yisrael Yu Yishanim Kol Laila. The Bnei Yisrael was sleeping all night. Vuhutzrach Hakadosh Baruch Hu Laherotam LeKabela Torah. And Hashem, so to speak, had to wake them up to receive the Torah. Kedita VeLachkach Anu Tzichim LeTzakenze. And therefore, we need to uh, correct this. We need to fix it up. So that is why it's called Tikkun Lel. Tikkun means to fix, like Tikkun Olam. Where everyone says that Tikkun Olam is to fix the world. Tikkun Olam means to fix the night. Why are you fixing the night? Because that first night where we should have been up all night in eager anticipation to receive the Torah. We not. We went to sleep and Hashem had to wake us up. Therefore, L'Tarke in the Lel, to fix the night, we have to um, uh, spend the night learning. Or at least spend the night in preparation. Now... And so now there are a whole bunch of reasons, other reasons brought about uh, in Kabbalistic literature. But what becomes interesting is when you say, all right, stop or not learning. It's, a, it's, it's, it's definitely a tikkun as opposed to a uh, doing it the way it should have been done. Because it's clear that originally they did, what, what should they have done? So what they couldn't have done was spend or not learning Torah because they didn't have a Torah to learn or not. So what could they have done? So they should have probably just been up all night. You know, if we, I remember as a kid, the night before we went on holiday, I could never go to sleep than that night. You were so excited to go on a holiday tomorrow, couldn't sleep. But what developed with this original takana was um, a, a something called a tikkun. A, t- a tikkun is, um, so tikkun leo is often understood as to fix the night. But a tikkun is uh, something that we see in a number of d- different times um, in Jewish law. So, for example, there's something called Tikkun Chatzot. So, Tikkun Chatzot is a, is a particular uh, prayer that is said at midnight and is done through many different uh, very pious individuals. I've never done it in my life, but there are people who get up at midnight to say this prayer called Tikkun Chatzot. If, you're, uh, if you've prepared for your bar mitzvah or your boys prepared for their bar mitzvah, the book they use to prepare for it is called a Tikkun Korim. A Tikkun is, a, is, a, is like a, an established text that has been put together to allow the Bar Mitzvah boys to it. And so too on Tikkun Lel, there is a Tikkun that should be learnt. It's a specific set of, um, 
of materials that are made up of some verses from the Tanakh, some Mishnayot, some Gomorrahs, some, like a whole bunch of different things. It's a thick book that, to the best of my knowledge, you can't actually get through it in one night unless you're an incredibly uh, scholarly individual. But nevertheless, there's this whole idea of a Tikkun. Now, I've never met anybody who has learned the Tikkun. Um, I'm sure such people do exist. But what it lands up happening is definitely in the diaspora, it's just a bunch of Shurim that happen in most shuls that go up until a particular point in time. Or alternatively, in Yeshiva, you just learn all night long. But no one ever learned the Tikkun. So it sort of evolved. It's a, <coughs> this, whole, this whole phenomenon of what it was supposed to be and what it's become has really shifted. So that's the first custom. So we have the custom, but we don't really do the custom. You know, we sort of stay up all night, but we don't really learn what we're supposed to be learning. We learn whatever we want to learn. And uh, my experience will suggest that Tikkun Lel is uh, largely spent around eating cheesecake at 2 o'clock in the morning and spending a lot of time around the coffee machine. Now, that's true in Yeshiva as well as elsewhere. Now, there's an interesting article that uh, I remember seeing it quoted and quoted in the, with a very short summary. And when I looked online, the article was 31 pages and I didn't have time to read through it all. But I'll give you the gist. And the gist is that uh, when did these customs, like when, when did Tikkun Lao start? So you would think that Tikkun Lao started the first anniversary, the second Shavuot in, um, you know, the first year we forgot that we fell asleep. So the second year, Tikkun Lao started. But that's not the case. Tikkun Lao is a very, very recent phenomenon. Now, how do I know it's a recent phenomenon? Because it's not mentioned in the Gemara. It's not mentioned in the Shulchan Aruch. It's not mentioned in any of the Rishonim or even in the early Achronim. The first time we see it mentioned is uh, here in the 1700s. So it means that what, what happened between, uh, you know, the beginning until, it might have been mentioned before the 1700s, but this is the first time we see it in mainstream Jewish literature. So if you were alive 500 years ago and came, tiku, you know, came Shavuot, there was no Tikkun Lel. You know, so that, it didn't happen. So what changed? So what the article wants to suggest, which I think is an interesting, is that Tikkun Lel became a thing when coffee made its way into Europe. That up until the, you know, the Americas were found, so coffee is a South American bean, and that only, st- uh, just, uh, I'm not exactly sure on the dates of the discovery of South America, but once the coffee bean started making its way into, into Europe, that's, and, and caffeine became a thing, that's all of a sudden where the concepts of staying up at night became uh, much more of a, of a thing. It's an interesting theory. Um, I mean, the Gomorrah really talks about the value of spending all nights uh, learning. So it's hard to say that uh, learning at night is only because of coffee. But uh, the idea seems to, according to this theory, was at least it was popularized as a result of, um, of coffee. All right, that's our first uh, offering for this evening. All right, our second one is a custom that this year, dare I say, we will not be, uh, we will not be fulfilling. At least not in the, the main sense. And that's, we would, the custom was to spread out various grasses, as I translate, plants and grasses in the shuls and in the homes. In honor and memory of the happiness around Simchat Torah. And we also have the custom to eat milk on the machlei, milk products on the first day of Shavuot. So let, before we get into the second part, let's just go into the first part about decorating 
our shul with grass? Why? Because the happiness of Shavuot. So what on earth does decorating the shul with plants got to do with Shavuot? So says the Mishnah Brewer, Zeh Simchat Matzan Torah, so just before Matan Torah, one of the warnings that Moshe gives to Bnei Israel is you need to make sure that your cattle don't walk up they don't graze around Har Sinai. So as much as the fact that we think that uh, the Sinai is a desert, the word Midbar that we talk about uh, in Seifa by Midbar, but Midbar does not mean desert. It means wilderness. It means barren. It means uh, not that there's nothing that's alive there, but rather that no one that inhabits that place. So, but Sinai was apparently um, very, uh, very lush at that point in time. And there was a lot of grazing. And, and, and so the, the, the cattle had to be prevented from going up. So, <coughs> so says the Mishnah So that is why you, uh, we, do, we make the, make the, uh, put the trees. And there's also a custom not to put plants but to put trees in the shul because on Shavuot we are judged regarding the fruit of the fruit of trees. So how's what's the apple and orange crop going to be like in Eretz Yisrael this year? That's judged on Shavuot, the Mishnah at the beginning of um, um, Rosh Hashanah, I think it alludes to that. So, but says the Vilna Gaon, Vagra bitel minagzem ishum shachshav, who chok ha'amim la'amid ilanot v'chagashelahem. So he says, why? We don't do this anymore. Why? Because it has become a custom amongst the Gentiles, uh, across the, uh, around the Gentiles, to put trees up on their festivals. Now, I don't know when the Christmas tree became a thing. And if that's what the Vilnagon, the Vilnagon's in the 1700s. So I don't know if it was really a thing back then, and that's what the Vilnagon's referring to, or he's referring to something else. But one or another, the idea of putting up trees as opposed to Asavim. So the, the, the English translation from Safari over here says that, the, uh, that they put up plants. I don't, the words Asavim usually means grasses. I'm not exactly sure. We usually put up these uh, premature palm trees, I think is what they are, that go around the shore. That seems to be the custom. But the Vilna Gaon says, no, Mamish, it's, uh, it's like you can't put a Christmas tree up. And you say, oh, but it's not Christmas as well. The, if the Christians put trees in their, their homes for uh, their festivals, so we can't put trees in our homes for our festivals, and therefore you've got to abolish the particular custom. That's what the Vilna Gaon says. To the best of my knowledge, I don't recall in Yeshiva them ever bringing in uh, trees and stuff. I stand corrected, but I don't recall it. But I don't remember a shul that doesn't do it. So it's one of those things that uh, the yeshiva and the, and the world seem to be doing different things. Now, one thing that is interesting, Rav Salavaitri pointed out, and I, I think this is um, quite interesting in general. So when it comes to reading the Ten Commandments, there's something called Tama Elyon and Tama Tachton. So there is the, um, the cancellation notes that are mentioned in the Torah about what the music is supposed to be when reciting the various psukim. So the, um, the, uh, there's usually the what we read every week. It's called Tama Tachton. And what it does is it just breaks up the verses, how it breaks them up with a, you know, in a particular flow. Tama Elyon, which is only, the only time we see it is with regards to the Ten Commandments. But they're both the Ten Commandments is mentioned twice, but, and both have a Tama Elyon. And what it does is that, some of the Ten Commandments are very, very short and will have um, multiple commandments in one verse. 
So don't murder, don't steal, don't adultery, all in one verse, even though they are three separate commandments. And commandments like Shabbat and uh, and uh, honor your parents and uh, don't uh, don't covet. I actually have quite a few verses in one command. So Tamatachton, the the bottom one, what that will do is it will just you you read three verses for uh, the first Anuchi Hashem, I'm Hashem your God. You will read three verses and then you'll read uh, uh, three co- commands in one verse. Tama Elyon does it differently. <coughs> it breaks up the notes in such a way that each pasuk, each verse is one of the commandments. So when you line, when you line it, <coughs> the Ten Commandments are ten verses. That's how it's done. Okay. So the question is, is when do we ever read the Ten Commandments when the time tachton? So Rav Salavachik said, you should always read it, but time tachton. Because that's how you know. So that's how it's read, except on Rosh uh, except on Shavuot. On Shavuot, it should be read Betama Elyon. Now, why? He says because there are a few customs that we have. So that's one custom. You should be read Betama Elyon. Number two is: Do we stand? Is it okay to stand for certain parts of reading the Torah? So I stand for this verse or that verse. You stand for some, not for others. So the Rambam paskins that it is prohibited to stand for parts of the Torah as opposed to other parts because it gives a, a significance that this particular part of the Torah is different and more important than other parts of the Torah. And so you're not allowed to do it. Now, just parenthetically, the Gemara comes and tells us that it used to be a custom in, um, in uh, the times of the Beit HaMikdash that every day, every day they would read out the Aserta Dibrot, they read out the Ten Commandments. And they stopped it because of the minim, because of the heretics. It's not clear if the heretics were the, um, were the early Christians or other people. But they were saying, ah, they read the Ten Commandments out by themselves. Must be that those mitzvot are more important than the other 603. So we stopped doing it. And so that whole concept is why we're not allowed to stand up for parts of the Torah reading and not for others. So the idea of uh, standing for the uh, Ten Commandments or for the Song of the Sea uh, becomes very, very problematic. So Rav Soloveitchik, uh, not everyone paskins like that Rambam, you should know. But th- that is a qu- quite a common opinion, which is why, if you've noticed, I stand for the whole Torah reading. It's based on that Rambam. Now, what Rav Soloveitchik said is, okay, he's going to put three things together here. On Shavuot... What is the uh, giving of the, the read, Torah reading of the morning? It says, what we are doing is not reading what happened, but rather reenacting Mamar Harsina. We are reenacting the experience of, of receiving the Torah. And how do we do that? It says, we do three things. Number one, we stand to hear the Torah reading because it's not a Torah reading. It is a, recrea- a recreation of, uh, of uh, standing in Sinai. And as they stood at Sinai, we stand. Number two, we decorate the shul to make it look like Harisinai. So we put the trees or whatever, the plants, and to make it look like Harisinai. And three, when we read the Torah, we read it differently. We don't read it in the way it was normally broken up. We read it in such a way that each one of the Ten Commandments is recited as a commandment in the verse. And that's why we do the Tama Elyon. So those three things Rav Soloveitchik tied together to explain why we do these things all slightly differently. Okay, so those are the things. All right, so that was the um, 
the custom of plants. Now, going back up, we said that there's another custom over here. So we are, <coughs> let me just get my little pen so I can show where we are. But the Noagim Bakomakom, and the custom is in all places to eat Machlei Chalav, the Yom Rishon Shal Shavuot, to eat uh, fruit, uh, to eat milk dishes on the first day of Shavuot. Venerally, now the Shulchan Aruch is going to explain why. Nearly at time, shu kamo ashnei tafshilim shilochim belel pesach. So, on your seder plate, uh, some 40 uh, plus days ago, you would have had an egg and a shank bone, or a chicken bone, or a chicken wing, or neck, or whatever the case might be. Now, why are they there? So, they are there to remember two sacrifices that were offered on Leo Pesach. On the Leo Pesach, you had the Korban Pesach, and that's the wing, that's the shank bone. And the other, the egg, is the Korban Chagiga, is the, uh, the, the festival offering that was always offered. So it says, "Veniras lizatam shu kamosh nei tavshilim shlochim belel pesach zechel pesach zechel hagiga." Says so. Why do we do have milk? Says well, on pesach we had two sacrifices. So similarly, v'chein ochli machlei chalav v'achakach machlei machal basar. So he's going to come and explain. The mishabro explained it, but I explained it outside. Is what we do is we eat milk and we bring bread, and that becomes. The first, uh, as if that is the first sacrifice, and then we bring uh, have a second meal, so to speak, with the with the meat, and that is the second sacrifice. So the two the two sacrifices that were offered on Shavuot were one the Chagiga, the same as Pesach. Excuse me, the other was called Shtei Halechen, was offered uh, two loaves of bread that were offered on Shavuot. So to remember the two separate sacrifices of Shavuot, we have two separate. Meals, so to speak. You have a milk meal that comes with bread and a meat meal that comes with bread, and that is why we do it. Okay? So that is coming to remind us of what we did on Shavuot. Okay. Now the Mishnah is going to explain that a little bit uh, more. Oh. Uh, okay, I'll, I'll just bring the English because I can't see the Hebrew and the English. So, the first reason that it has to do with this, um, the two sacrifices. That's why. So, it's not so much to eat milk alone, but it's to have milk as well as meat. So, you have a meat meal, but you also have milk. So, he says, this is a mission of Brewer. He says, I also heard the name of a Gadol, of a particular great man. He said, the correct reason for this is that when Bnei Yisrael stood at Har Sinai and accepted the Torah when the Ten Commandments were revealed, and through this, all parts of the Torah also reveals them. Because don't forget, on, on the Knights of Ten Commandments, we only got the Ten Commandments. So the laws of Kashrut were not yet given. But he quotes, But Rav Sadia Gaon, so Rav Sadia Gaon, we are talking now, uh, 10th century, um, one of the early commentaries, and he says, What's so unique about the Ten Commandments? He says that the Ten Commandments are the prototype of all 613 commandments. That all 613 commandments will fall into one of those 10 categories. So when we got the 10 commandments, we really got the blueprint of the entire Torah. And therefore, <coughs> and therefore he says, sorry, let me just get my little pen. Um, so when they went down from the mountain to their homes, they found nothing to eat immediately except for dairy foods because the meat foods would need much uh, more preparation to slaughter. 
with a checked knife. So you have to slaughter it, you have to have a proper knife, and you've got to clean out all the forbidden foods and fat and, and, and blood. You, you've got to clean the animal, you've got to, you've, got to, uh, you've got to salt the animal, rinse it, and you've got to cook it. How are you going to cook it? You don't have any utensils. All your utensils are trafe because you had them yesterday. So what do we do? We made it simple. We only eat milk products because milk products are much simpler to, um, to prepare. Now, milk products, I don't know what milk products were in, uh, other than milk. Uh, maybe you had some butter. I don't think you had the cheeses. I don't think you had yogurts. So I'm not exactly what milk products they were eating. But that being said, what should we do now? We know that Avram Avinu served butter to the, uh, to the malachim, to the angels. So they had butter. But beyond that, I'm not sure. Bread, butter, and milk. So but that's where the custom comes from. Now, what's important about this whole concept is that milk has not really become, if you, if you see the bit, is that it's not that you eat milk instead of eating meat, is that you eat milk as well as eating meat. So again, the Rambam, you know, quotes the idea that every yont of meal, you know, there's no simcha that you have to have meat as part of a yont of meal. Vegetarians aside, you have to have meat. So if you have to have meat, so what's the milk? So one says, oh, what are you talking about? They don't contradict. You have milk, and then you have meat. So you have a milkic entree, and then you have meat. And, and that's what you should be. Now, in yeshiva, you never had a milkic dinner. It just never existed. Fleishic dinners. Well, now, it wasn't because of the simplicity. You know, lest you come and say, oh, you got milk because it was easier to do milk. Because every Shabbos we had fleishics. And there, but every um, every night of the week, other non Shabbos, you have milchiks. In Israel, the the way it works here in Australia, usually lunch is a smaller meal and dinner is the big meal. In Israel, lunch is the big meal. So in Yeshiva, you got uh, milchik dinners every night of the week, except Shabbos and your and, and Shavuot and Yontif. The only Yontif that you in Yeshiva for is Shavuot, but um, Rosh Hashanah. But uh, so the, the milk was always part that you have milk and meat, not milk in isolation. Um, <clears throat> so there's a question here. Let me just see what the question was. Were they not eating manna? Um, okay, two questions. Are you supposed to wait six hours after dairy before eating meat? So the only kind of cheese that the only kind of milk that you have to wait six hours is something called hard cheese. Hard cheese is defined as cheese that has been aged for around about 12 months. Um, to most opinions, we do not have hard cheese nowadays. And so definitely, we def- in Australia, we definitely don't have the cheeses that require you to wait for six hours. Uh, question of manna. That is a very good question, Gerald or Mina. I'm not sure who it is, but... Um, um, when did the manna come? The manna definitely came before Mamar Hasina. It came straight after I think. That is a very good question. I do not know. I will come back to you. You've stumped you've stumped the rabbi. I will get back to you. It's a good question. Alright. Uh, okay, so I want to bring uh, another opinion. This is an opinion brought by a commentary called the Arachashulchan. So the Arachashulchan was Rachel Yaakov Epstein. Um, no, Michael uh, Epstein, and he said as follows: This is similar. This is also early 1900s, late 18, early 19s. It says, "That through Matan Torah we were all elevated. 
And we were flipped from being the, 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 the impurity of Egypt to, the pure, the, to a holy purity. So why do we have milk? Because milk, similarly, what is milk? Milk is the elixir of life, so to speak. And what's it come from? It says, It says, milk is from blood. Where does the milk come from? The blood of the animal and the, in the udders, whatever. It's turned the blood and made it into milk. So it says, and there's a hint within this, that judgment turns into mercy. You put saffron. And you also put saffron, you put sweet-smelling incenses in the food. So you try to put good-smelling stuff. So there's this idea that the giving of the Torah and sweet-smelling and everything should also be there. So you should have a good-smelling food. I guess in those days, food in and of itself did not necessarily smell good. Um, but that is the idea. All right. Um, let me just see. I just see another question. Give me a sec. It says, so why does the non-yeshiva world focus so much on cheesecake and lasagna rather than some milk products and then meat? Um, I don't. Why do we have? Why is every shavuot standard in every shul around the world that I'm aware of, of having um, fish, lasagna, and cheesecake? And uh, no one ever has a flesh. I can imagine the, the outrage if I were to say that, uh, you know, next year for Shavuot we're going to have a flesh meal. So why is that the case? So the same case is no one does the tikkun. And the same reason that, uh, you know, people don't, uh, you, you know, the, the, the trees and the plants, uh, we don't put grasses up, we do things like that. Customs develop over time. Develop over time. We all, we all have flesh. I don't actually know if we have flesh. I haven't had a Shavuot at home uh, in a very, very long time. So I haven't actually spoken to the family to decide what we're going to have. But uh, I can think of a very pragmatic reason to have milchik products. And that is that uh, milchik products are a lot easier to stop all night if you're eating milchiks than you can be if you're eating fleishiks. Uh, a heavy fleishik meal is very conducive to falling asleep. But uh, I don't know. It, it could be that it just became one of those things that uh, caught on. In, in, in communities around the world, we're always trying to find new ways to engage communities. So I think that's it. All right. Carrying on. So this is on first Shavuot. So there's also a custom for people to eat apple, uh, to eat, uh, not apple, but milk and honey. Since the Torah is analogous to honey and milk. It's a pasuk out of Shira uh, Shirim, Song of Songs, where it compares the relationship with Hashem to, you know, honey and milk. So, therefore, we have milk. I haven't seen anyone have milk and honey specifically on this. All right. Um, let me see. Okay, there are a couple of points that are left out, but um, let me... Um, well, let me go back. So I mentioned earlier that the, uh, the, that the Shulchan Aruch brings that the idea is to have a, meat, a milk meal with bread and then to have a meat meal. Now, this is what the Mishnah Brewer explains on it. He says, what, what does he mean by that? 
כן אנחנו צריכים לעשות בשבועות זכר לשתי הלחם. So just on Pesach, we have the egg and the shank bowl to remember the sacrifices that were offered then. So too on Shavuot, we've got to have two uh, loaves of bread to remember Shayumavim that they would bring the two loaves of bread. And therefore we eat milk and then meat, because you can't do it otherwise. So of course ideally you shouldn't eat meat and milk from one loaf of bread. So you shouldn't have the loaf of bread that you, um, you have on Friday night at your dinner shouldn't be used for, uh, for uh, cheese toast Motzei Shabbos. Because the bread has been served at a fleshic meal and now you shouldn't have it with milk afters. Now, that is definitely true in those days. However, if in nowadays, if you slice bread and you, you know for a certain, the concern was that it's not the problem that the meat was served at a uh, the bread was served at a fleshic meal. The problem is the fact that uh, maybe flesh came in contact with the bread. So the bread itself became fleshic. So if you know for certain that that did not happen, so it wouldn't be a problem to do it. But otherwise, uh, so that's the whole idea. That, um, but... Uh, I do not know anyone that does this particular minhag, um, that, that has two loaves of bread followed by another two loaves of bread. Um, it's, a, it's an interesting custom, but again, even in yeshiva, um, they would not, to the best of my knowledge, I think the custom was, I think we're going to quote it here on this last source on the page here. Um, so, quotes, So, the custom to have mochik, on the first of Shavuot. Some have the custom to have a mochik meal on the night. But during the day they have meat. So there's already a custom that's developed, you know, through time that, uh, that we'd have the mochik and arts and meat in the day. And someone will say, no, that's not how you should do it. That we should uh, have a mitzvah of simcha, of happiness on Yom Tov, and therefore we should have meat at night as well. And you can only be happy if there's meat. So, even those, so even those who have a mochik meal at night, they don't, it's not, it's not, like, understand that, mochik in the ancient world, were not mechubad. You know, a mochik meal was like, like as a young yeshiva bocha, when I was younger, um, the idea that you could go, like, as teenagers in yeshiva, and they said, should we go out for dinner? The idea is, well, should we, the question, mochiks or fleishiks, was never a question that yeshiva boys asked. Like, it's just, there's no such thing as a mochik meal. I mean, you get a mochik snack. You cannot get a mochik meal. And pizza was, was like, okay, like if you have to. But like you would never, and if you, th- if you go back into the, uh, you know, a few hundred years ago, the concept of a mochik meal was just, what was a mochik meal? It was milk and bread and, and butter and maybe cheese. It wasn't like today where you have a mamisha mochubitika meal. You can go to a mochik restaurant and have a very, very mochubitika meal. So, and it can bring a genuine level of simcha. Once upon a time, the only real meal you had was a fleishik meal. <coughs> so things have shifted. So this idea, and that's what he puts over here. He says, Even those who eat mochik meals, they eat a very mechubedika meal. It's a very important meal. They have fish, they have lots of delicacies, and they drink wine. 
this idea that nowadays you can actually have a really mechubedika meal with milk. So maybe it's not so bad. So even though they, you know, it should have, you know, ideally in the past it would have been a fleshic meal. Nowadays we, we can have a milchic meal as long as it's a mechubedika meal. So cheese toast, no. But, uh, you know, proper lasagna, I was at uh, Sudat Purim this year. I was out this year, and they and it was a, a milchik meal. They had lasagnas, and it was out of this world. It was the one of the best meals I've ever had. So you ask if you were to ask me, what would I rather have, a barbecue or those lasagnas again? If you ask me, which would I think is a much more mechudik meal? No question. Barbecue takes ten minutes. You put on the barbecue, comes out, eat with some bread. It's tasty. It's fill, it's filling. But uh, geez, man, the amount of time and effort that went into the milchik, much much more superior. All right, there's one more source that I did not yet quote, so I just want to bring it. I can't remember what it says, but... Um, um, okay, so this is Laruch uh, HaShulchan. This was uh, regarding the spreading of uh, of um, leaves and plants in the, in the shul. And it says, V'kadvu... Sorry. V'kadvu shenoagim nishtoach asavim b'shvot... Shavuot, and the custom was to spread out different plants and grasses on Shavuot, in homes and shuls, for because of Matan Torah. If it falls on Sunday, so if Shavuot falls on a Sunday, this year it falls on a Friday, but if it falls on a Sunday, so when are you going to prepare it? So it says, so then on Thursday or Friday, so it's going to fall on a Sunday. That means that Shabbos comes Erev Shavuot. So when do you put the trees out? It says you've got to put them out on Friday, two days before Shavuot. Because you're not allowed to move plants and trees on Shabbat. Okay. So he quotes similarly to he said the, uh, that the Vilna Gaon says that we stop putting trees in shuls. Now, he, what he doesn't do over here is that what is the difference between asavim and ilanot? And asiv, asiv means usually um, uh, means uh, grasses and the like, whereas an ilan is a tree. So uh, what do we put in shul? So these little palm things that we do, are these trees or these plants or these uh, grasses alike so um i don't know all i know is that it seems to be that we've accepted it around the world that the vilna Gaon would probably not be happy with our plants in the shul but that being said is you could say maybe these are something all right the question did the rum buns principle still apply with the last source i don't know what the rum buns principle is regarding the last source have to explain and unmute yourself so maybe you can explain what you mean by your question don't understand it um sorry the room um he said and does that still apply for for that bottom source but you can still get a so so the question of can you fulfill the the mitzvah of of being happy on yontif if the if the the rambam quotes that you can only be ain simcha the only real form of happiness is with meat and wine so what about bismanazi so Times have definitely changed. So, if you're a vegetarian, so does that mean you never fulfilled the mitzvah of Simchat Yontif? 
Um, so meat eaters might say yes. That without meat, there's, you cannot be happy. But um, I think the times have definitely changed and that uh, it's really coming down to the quality of the meal rather than the eating of flesh. I think in the ancient world, the eating of flesh and the quality of the meal went hand in hand. So, for example, I do not drink wine. I do not like wine. So, should I sh- is, is, it, is, it, is drinking wine and eating meat a mitzvah in the same way as putting on tefillin? So, if it is, so it doesn't matter if you want to put on tefillin. So, if you're a vegan, so does a vegan put on tefillin? I mean, he doesn't, the one says, yes, the vegan's obligated in tefillin. Ah, but he doesn't eat meat. All right, fine, but uh, tefillin are made of leather. You've got to wear tefillin. Ain't my last thought. But uh, I don't like eating meat. Well, the whole point of Simcha is it's supposed to make you happy. The mitzvah has been Sameach. So, so who's the Rambam? When the Rambam says you've got to eat meat and drink wine, so what's he really referring to? So I, I'm pretty sure this is the case, but I, I stand corrected. So the idea is don't, don't, uh, don't skimp. Because meat's expensive, wine's expensive. And you'd say, you know what, bread and water's fine. I'm happy with bread and water. No, you can only be happy with meat. You have to go to the expenditure of having meat and wine. No, but I'm happy without it. No, you're not happy without it. You have to have it so you spend the money on a mechubedika meal. But if you're going to say, listen, I've got to, it's not the money and it's not the effort. I'm putting all the money and effort because to put, you know, to have a, a cheese lasagna, to have a, a side of salmon. Kosher meat is cheaper than salmon. So, like, if you're going to talk about the expense, it's much cheaper to have a, a T-bone steak than it is to have a, a side of salmon. So, so I think that's really where the Ramam's coming from. I don't think there's anything specifically around meat or around wine. So to know, you don't have to make yourself ill with wine. It's a matter that you're supposed to be expending uh, money on, on, on making yourself happy. You should self-indulge on Yontif. That is part of the mitzvah. And, uh, but uh, that self-indulgence, I think, has changed with time. All right. So that is my offering uh, for this evening. I don't know if anyone has any other questions. Moya and Joyce, wonderful to see you. Bertie, lovely to see you. Louis, I see part of your computer. Any other questions before we sign off for this evening? Mina, I will get back to you with that very good question. It's one of those embarrassing questions that you're like, how did I never think of that as a question? It's like such an obvious one, but I, I will get back to you. Blinada. Blinada. So, um, all right. All right, everybody, have a wonderful evening. Look forward. There is no sheer tomorrow night. At least, we stand corrected. I'm not giving sheer tomorrow night. Tomorrow night, we have a fantastic program of women all over Sydney and the world. Many of them are all the local, the other local women or women who used to be local. Um, They'll be giving 10 minutes, um, 10 minute ideas from 6.30 tomorrow at 8 o'clock. We have... Rabbinit Rachel Frankel speaking, and she is really a super. She is phenomenal. So she'll be speaking at 8 o'clock tomorrow. Same link as this, but I will send out reminders tomorrow. So hope to see you all then. But the regular shoot tomorrow night will not be happening. And then on Wednesday night again, we have a similar thing, but with rabbi, with the rabbis from all over Sydney this time, with Rabbi Dr. Abraham J. Tversky, who will be speaking at 8 o'clock. So I hope you can join us for all of those. To that end, I wish you all a pleasant evening and a Laila Tov.